Welcome to today's episode of the Women in MedTech podcast on the MedTech Business Academy. Today's episode, we're going to be in our first in the book club series, and our team read Invisible Women by Carolyn Criado Perez. This was a McKinsey and Company business book of the year in 2019 and examines the data bias in a world designed for men. So one of the really interesting things that we just said right before we hopped on is that, uh, you know, I'm just Ken, one, and the Barbie movie totally got snubbed and, and that was very on theme for the book that we just talked about. So let's go ahead and dive right into the conversation. Barbara, what were some of your thoughts? Well, just right off the cuff, uh, the, the theme started out really looking at what can we really say about different aspects of just daily lives that you wouldn't even think about are maybe gender focused, men versus women and, and the examples there. So we can talk about that as well as things that happen in academia, both from a student viewpoint as well as a professor viewpoint. And then there was a, a great chapter about business meritocracy. So what did that <laughs> sort of dig into? Yep. And then things about employment and a, and a variety of other things. So we've got enough to feed quite a few different uh, either mm -hmm. episodes we sprinkle throughout whatever. But I, I thought that it was it spoke to the past, the sort of the middle and the and the now. And where do we go from here? I think that's a really great recap on, you know, some of our key points about the book itself. And I'm going to say, let's start diving into some of these specific topics. I know that one of the really interesting things that took me by surprise is that research has found that nurses are subjected to more acts of workplace violence than police officers or prison guards. And a U.S. study said that healthcare workers required more time off due to violence at, at four times the amount than any other type of injury. Um, you know, both of you guys being clinicians, how do you find that resonating with you, your truth and what you've witnessed, as well as what you may be hearing from friends and colleagues? Well, you know, I'll, I'll just um, speak up on this one. So it's interesting as a, as a healthcare provider, as a nurse in the emergency department for many years of my career, violence um, towards providers um, for a long time was actually somewhat accepted, right? Like it was blamed on, oh, well, they're addicted. Oh, they're withdrawing. Oh, you know, it was blamed on whatever the clinical situation that brought them in. Um, but the protection of the provider, specifically the nurse, um, was almost an afterthought. You know, you call security, you know, patient gets restrained, et cetera. I do, um, I have noticed in the last just few years, um, almost a, a reckoning on this topic within the nursing community. I'm hearing about it a lot more. There's some nurse influencers um, that come to mind that are very active and very vocal. Um, I'm going to shout out Rebecca Love on that because I know she's had some really powerful pieces um, about this exact topic. Yeah, Rebecca Love, Nurse Erica comes to mind. Nurse Erica tends to expose some of the deep, dark secrets in healthcare. This is one I hear her um, present on. So shout out to Nurse Erica. Um, but basically just saying, you know, look, this happened and really just the, you know, overall lack of protection 
for the nurse in general. So I think we've made some steps forward in the fact that we're finally talking about it. It's not getting um, hidden behind administrative doors. Um, I do still think there's a long way to go to truly put legislation and laws into place that ultimately protect our our workforce that's sacrificing their own health and their bodies, um, you know, to, to help others. So one of the really pervasive topics within the book itself was also about attention to topics. You know, when, when things are happening, are we speaking about them? Are we bringing them up? Are these deemed important? And as somebody who, you know, this is our industry, you guys were clinicians, uh, you know, we are closer to the topic. But one of the things that I did after reading that was I went to my husband, who's not in this industry and a man and said, hey, you know, like, I know that you have, you know, heard all sorts of things about violence against police officers. What do you know about violence against nurses? And he said, pretty much nothing. Um, you know, Barbara, why, you know, why do you think that is as far as what the coverage looks like and what as, as med tech aficionados, what can we do to help foster a better environment? Well, one of the themes was we can't be silent about it when it's occurring. Either you see something say something, or if it happens to you, you need to say it. But too often, when women especially have done this, then it's not taken anywhere, or it's not taken seriously, or you just don't see something happening. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of squashed down versus taking it seriously. Uh, how do you really approach it? Because when you think about it, most leaders, supervisors, managers in organizations, uh, even in healthcare, aren't really trained to understand in an HR relationship what does this really mean? What do I do with this? So to Stephanie's point, there's a lot we have to learn about how do we treat this? Because in the current uh, climate with so many nurses either retiring or I've had it over the last few years, I'm going on to something else, the workforce shortage one of the reasons is leadership doesn't pay enough attention to HR issues and all of the things that are going on. Therefore, why should I put myself into these situations? So there's just so many dynamics going on. It was always really interesting to me in the sections the book was covering about awareness was the perception of, of is, is this even a problem? And the book specifically also referenced lean in um, that, you know, is, is one of the predominant like, hey, if you're going to be a woman in business, we're, we're reading lean in. And the fact that, you know. Google never had pregnancy parking and, until Cheryl needed it. And so I do think that there's an opportunity that as women go into some of those leadership roles within nursing, leadership roles within the hospital, that we're bringing some of that, some of that awareness to us. Um, do you feel like that's something that, you know, Stephanie, you specifically said that there is more attention to it now. Um, do you see that at more of the influencer level or do you actually hear of people saying that at the hospital level as well? 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's more attention to it. I think the question is, is what's, what action is actually resulting from the attention that it's getting? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 I can't help but hold back. Um, and I'm not finished reading the book, so I'm, it, it's a really great read. I mean, there's a lot to digest, but what really struck me, Colleen and Barbara, and this is really right in the beginning, um, they define the book title. So again, it's Invisible Woman. And they say it's a story about absence. And I couldn't help the entire time I was diving into this book to think about our our maternal and infant mortality here in the United States. So oh, no. recently, recently read um, an article that of the 37 developed countries in the world, the United States ranks 35th. And the reason I bring this up when we talk about invisible women is how more invisible can we be? So why is that? Right. In, and in this book, they do talk about how women are not heard in healthcare Uh, patients that are, you know, females aren't heard. I was just uh, with a patient advocate and, and she talks a lot about not being heard. You know, her dad Mm -hmm. speaks up for her, you know, and, when you think about maternal mortality in a country as advanced as ours, I mean, we have advanced fetal monitoring, we have prenatal care, we have we have so many components of infrastructure. And I know there's many layers to this because there's an equitable context to this as well. Mm-hmm. But the fact that our maternal mortality is 35th out of 37, literally Mexico is next in line. I just think that speaks of volumes to the title of this book, Invisible Woman. And there's just so many layers to this conversation. We could probably have a year-long podcast on the topic alone. But to me, the correlation was just Invisible Woman, Maternal Mortality. It's like that is the perfect parallel really it just defines the whole thing for me i think what was really most upsetting about that section on maternal mortality was the fact that for you know and we are three white women on on this call and you know there are going to be some diversity pieces that we talk about um on what the book covered but it's a 243 percent more likely if you are an african-american woman to experience um, either childbirth related issues or to actually pass away from, from pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking about maternal, maternal morality, uh, mortality, that's not even, you know, white women as an, in, as an entirety, but also those specific demographics that are, um, really treated very poorly. Uh, that's, you know, the quality of the care, uh, access to pain medicine. It's um, one of the really interesting statistics in the book to me was also the idea that a woman in the ER waits longer for the exact same condition than a man does. Um, you know, we two people present at the exact same time that, you know, what does that mean when you know you ask an average person like oh you know what do you what are your feelings on race and nobody's ever like yeah i i love being racist everybody I mean, has that perception of like oh that's not me but the numbers don't lie on what these what this is it's not 243% because of nothing mm-hmm. i have to share with you some family banter we were just having um as i as i was reading this book my family saw the book and Uh, we were just having some good banter back and forth. And I was explaining to them when a male comes into the emergency room, 
with testicular pain, the triage categories, like one is like a trauma, a code, you're dying, right? A two is like critical, important, super getting back fast. Three, you know, fever, abdominal pain, you know, needs to be seen, but can wait a few minutes, you know, four and five are like less urgent. Hangnail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I go, you guys, I go, where do you think testicular pain uh, comes in at related to uh, abdominal pain or, uh, uh, you know, pain that a woman comes in with the abdomen? And it's a two. It's like similar to that of a trauma alert. Like, a, so, so it was right like, up there I, with I, gunshot I, wounds is, is exactly. I was able to make so many funny kind of clinical um, correlations. And I'm like, okay, so the testicles obviously take priority over the ovaries. Like, yes. I mean, obviously, right. Yes. The fact that women are still getting IUDs without any pain medication, obviously the answer to that step yes. is like, Oh, no, no, you know, not the the male bits and pieces. Yeah, we've gone through menstruation, possibly, you know, childbirth. You have high pain thresholds. Oh, my God, have a man have a cold. You think they're, you know, you've got to go to the emergency room. So anyway, that's the only bad thing I think. (laughs) One of the things that was the most interesting is mm -hmm. you talked about data. However, there's thousands of data points out there. And even with AI, the book mentions that there are gaps in how AI, uh, you know, it's coded, all those sorts of things, but there's even a bias within AI and the gaps are there as well. So how do we overcome this, even with some of the smartest intelligence that we have out there? And if we don't start doing it, we're not going to raise from 35 up the ranks and things. So just to just to provide a little bit of context for our listeners who I'm going to assume have not read the book, um, the AI issue that uh, Barbara is referencing is that the introduction to AI to medical diagnostics has been accompanied with little to no acknowledgement of the well-documented and chronic gaps in medical data when it comes to women specifically. With our body of knowledge being so heavily skewed towards men and their and the male body, is AIs are statistically not making the correct diagnosis for women, actually making the diagnosis worse more often than accurate. Let so that- Stephanie, you were you were about to say something? <laughs> No, well, I was just they let that sink in. Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just gonna, you know, I mean, I think the the premise of AI, right, is it's taking all the all the information that exists in this data space and pulling it. Well, the problem is, is if women aren't included in studies and women and minorities aren't included in, you know, um research and not included in publications and not included in the writings of history then AI won't pull it forward. So, you know, it, it gets to the root of many of the challenges that I, kn- I know that there is good effort underway to balance that, right? Like the FDA, for example, is really looking at, you know, equity in medical device research, equity in pharmaceutical research. A great piece in Invisible Woman, they talked about um, medications and the efficacy and the difference in male and female groups. And um, one of them, they indicated that it was done fair and equitable across male and female. 
And the problem was, was they only looked at that in phase one studies. They didn't continue to look at that differentiation in phase two and phase three studies. Mm-hmm. And, and actually the females were only representing 20% of the actual data that they were basing their claims off of. So, you know, I know that the I know that there's a lot of great effort um, by researchers to begin um, to look at this, but you continue to hear about gaps, and it, mm-hmm. and it's not just in women. It was really great last week. I'm a big fan of um, the Today Show. So Savannah Guthrie, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> but they shared last week. They shared this study that um, that if you take a multivitamin. Um, that your your memory is like two years greater and more advanced than those that don't. So basically take your multivitamin because you'll have better memory. And they talked about, you know, there was good representation in men and women, et cetera. However, there wasn't good representation equitably um, across all races. So even today in research that makes it to our morning TV news shows, we're still not seeing you know, true research that really spans not just male and female, but truly the representation of our population in the world today. So while strides are happening, um, we have a lot of work to do to really level that playing field. I think that the the idea of really having a lot of work to do is something that that resonated with me personally. And the idea of if we see something, say something and be be the voice, be the be the person who's speaking up. And I think especially for the position that we are all in with positions of influence within medical technology of of what we're promoting, of the direction our organizations are going in, it really is the element of like, hey, where where are the ladies in this? Where are the ladies in the drug trials? Where are the ladies that we're testing the endocrine disrupting chemicals that are in you know, our IV tubing? Are we doing things that are safe and ethical for everyone, not just the default white male? Um, and I think that it's one of the really hard parts about that is that, you know, white male leaders are historically praised for promoting diversity, whereas female and ethnic minority leaders are then almost like scolded for the idea that, hey, this is something that that matters to you, that we avoid negative stereotypes when we engage in actively low level of diversity initiatives. So there is the element of it, it this is a moment for if you for any of our our white men listeners you need to help speak up about this is your wife, this is your mother, this is your daughter, this is your sister. These are people that are meaningful in your life and if you're not helping you are part of the problem. Like there th- we are not in a position right now where I think anyone has the luxury of sitting by and not saying anything. And that for the fact that women are being punished for speaking up, ethnic minorities are being punished for speaking up. I hate to say this, but you'll get praised for saying, "Hey, diversity matters to me." And that I think is a really big responsibility that we all have about what should this landscape look like? How do we get more inclusion? Well, it's a good time to talk about this because diversity was brought up during those COVID years is because of the data they were collecting Mm -hmm. around 
who are the the sets of individuals by ethnic, uh, sex, uh, a variety of different categories that were more susceptible. And because of that, everybody had to sit up and say, we need to do better for all of these populations, but especially those that were recognized with all this fresh data. So it's not like we're trying to churn through old stuff. Mm -hmm. It became very evident when you looked at things and when you talk to different families and things and understand that they have lost 13 different family members. They've, they've lost so much and what are we going to do? So we know that it has to be done um, but it can't be a slow process like it has been because there's too much at stake. I so want to lighten and I, I just want to lighten it for just a second. So one of the things that I found <laughs> fascinating in this book was, you know, simple things like emojis. I don't know about you guys, but I try to text with emoji as much as I can. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have to be careful like in my emails not to use too many smiley faces and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But, you know, they just give your expression of what you're really, you know, trying to get at and say. But what's funny is um, they cite in the book, the world's fastest growing language used by 90% of the world's online population is an emoji. Yet it was not until 2016. So only, what, seven, eight years ago that Unicode decided to do something about the fact that most of the emojis were male emojis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the runner was a guy. It wasn't. It, it didn't represent a girl. And so today in preparing for the call, I was like, gosh, I never looked at my emojis like this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I know there's an emoji that represents me because I do the like, what do you think? Like the shoulders raised, hands by your side, <laughs> like, you know, palm to the forehead emoji. So I know those exist for the female, but I looked up nurse and because I just, you know, I would never use the male nurse emoji for myself. So I looked it up and, and actually, you know, they're, there is a, they bring up a male and a female nurse. But what I found interesting, I don't know, I would encourage you, the the listeners to check this out. The male nurse kind of looks like a doctor to me. So I don't know how you differentiate that. But I guess my point is, is even in our newest language of emoji speak, um, it wasn't until 2016 that they introduced um, female emojis to counter the male emojis. So I think that one of the most interesting parts of that um, even thought paradigm, and this is something that I am personally guilty of. So it's this is not some like, you know, we as the women in medtech are perfect and everyone else is, is garbage. But um, I remember it was oh, oh, not too different from when I started here. And I was actually um, speaking with somebody online on Twitter and they made a comment about yada, 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 being a doctor. And this is a, you know, the Twitter handle was like super person one, two, three, you know, the, their little profile picture was, you know, a cat. So nothing identifying there. And I made a default assumption that that was a man. Um, that, and that is one of those things that now in retrospect, like I am embarrassed to say that I heard doctor and thought, well, that's obviously a man. My personal care team, all women, uh, all my, all my physicians are women. And yet that was still that default of in my mind, when I was like, doctor, doctor is a boy. When I hear nurse, nurse is a lady. And I think that there's definitely some reworking of what our own 
defaults are that that there is more inclusion in language. Um, I do want to hop back to diversity for a quick second because I do know that um, Stephanie has been part of a big diversity project uh, pairing with the Association for Vascular Access. And I think that this would be a great topic, um, especially given this information that we're talking about, about, you know, how did that that project come to be? You know, how did how did you guys go about finding the people that were going to contribute to that? Wow. Um, gosh, I we could have a whole podcast on this because it is an incredible project. So the the project began, like I think a lot of research with a really simple question. And it was a clinician who said, you know, are my patients with darker skin tones, are they stuck more for IV access compared to lighter skin tones? And if so, what are we doing about it? Innocent question. Colleen Barber, what was fascinating to me is as I began to research this, because I was the one that asked the question, I basically said, I, I believe my dark-skinned babies are getting stuck more than my light-skinned babies. Is this true or am I just, you know, making this up? Mm -hmm. As I dove into the research, um, there was really only one good study on the topic. It was done out of Massachusetts General Hospital. And in that study, they identified that Patients who identified as Black, patients that were female and infants were more likely to be difficult IV access than the others in the study. And as a result, they were stuck more. They had delays in diagnosis, which led to delays in treatment diagnostics. And essentially, they were in beds, hospital beds longer. Single study on the topic. As a result, the Association for Vascular Access um, dove in on this topic as well and um, gathered a team of experts, an incredible team. And it's it's not just AVA members. There's other organizations that have gotten involved as well. And they're, they're looking into this. And the very first step is, um, is a, is a two-arm study uh, with different methods, quantitative and qualitative, looking at perspective. So they researched patients and they researched providers um, to get their perspectives on the topic itself. So currently, um, shout out to Judy Thompson for leading this work. Um, that currently, they're in the statistical analysis component of this work, and hopefully we'll have something published um, this year. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, you know, a, a big part of a, a lot of the topics on within the book are really about the idea of what data exists, what collection looks like, what money gets funded for studies, what that population entails. And so I just I'm really proud of, of you specifically, Stephanie, but just for being part of, you know, asking those questions and pushing the narrative that there has to be more to this than we know. Um, you know, there, there's more information here than than we're currently aware of. And it takes people saying, like, I've got questions that we need to figure out an answer to for us to really get somewhere in that. Um, Barbara, as your you know career has has evolved in the years, um, one of the things that, you know, along this same trial of of, you know, equity, of inclusion, one of the things that I found really interesting was also about the idea of, what 
what clinical trials and information existed and not just how it existed, but how it was presented. And that there are a lot of documents that are presented as being valid for men and women when there were no women at all on the study, or it's, you know, one out of 30 patients. In in your experience and in, in all the information that you've reviewed, do you feel like that's an accurate representation? Or do you feel like you've seen a little bit more equity than than what the book was was purporting? Well, the the first fallacy is is you're assuming you're looking at the majority of studies that were done. Mm-hmm. However, we do know that, and we say this all the time to level set people, anything that's published is probably the tip of an iceberg. Below the water is all of the work that's actually been done, all of the things that are going on, but people have to be uh, uh, focused enough and things to actually take the time to put it in a peer-reviewed article. So we're not seeing everything. One of the things that um, we look for in value analysis when we're looking at articles is, you know, are they, you know, at the highest of the pyramid of credibility, but do they have widespread? Most of the time we don't find pediatrics Mm -hmm. and that's a big deal. And then we find lower numbers of women or diverse populations. So we see that even during the work that we do when we're trying to research adopting a device or a piece of equipment or a practice. Mm-hmm. Steph, it looks like you had something to add. Yeah, I, you know, I just wanted to in, jump in there as well. So I think when we think about equity in healthcare, there's more to this conversation than skin tone and equity across skin tone, right? It's mm-hmm. it's equity for males and females. I mean, you look at uh, cardiac arrest and the women being heard and their complaints versus men and why treatments delayed, et cetera. There's a lot of studies on that topic. But I think an aspect that is important here is it's not just about skin tone. It's about equity between males and females. It's about equity with patients with rare disease. Mm -hmm. It's about ensuring that all of our patient groups are getting access to care. Um, so I think it's important, you know, that we, as, as I've been having a lot of conversations around health equity over the years, um, that comes up often. And what I, what I'm loving seeing and kudos, um, need to be, need to be shared groups like the joint commission are now including health equity in their hospital surveys. What does that mean? And why is that important? Hospital accreditation is based on the results of the surveys. The reimbursement is tied. They're asking questions like, who is leading your health equity initiatives? Mm -hmm. What are your initiatives? How are you measuring your success and your progress? And what happens if there's setbacks? These are real questions that are getting asked. So Mm -hmm. when we think about this movement of health equity, this isn't just about race. It's about looking at all patients that are being served in the healthcare sector. And I love to see the national patient safety goals now including focus on health equity, the joint commission now focusing on it. It's going to take all entities, mm-hmm. healthcare organizations, research groups, 
really making sure that they're not missing this component, that it actually becomes part of our daily work and understanding. And it's not, you know, tucked in a corner and missed that it's actually part of how we just naturally begin to think. And we have, we have a ways to go, but we're, we're definitely beginning to take some early steps now. I think that that is such a great point. I know we're getting to the end of today's uh, podcast. So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up with a, with a couple of final thoughts. As a medically complex patient myself, um, one of the conditions that I got diagnosed with at 25 years old is most commonly found in middle-aged African-American men. And so what awareness looks like of conditions of patients that, you know, are not, are atypical, what those presentations look like, having clinicians that, you know, I was incredibly fortunate that my doctors were like, I'm not going to take what what's going on at face value. I'm going to figure out what's happening. But not everybody has access to that same care. And so I completely agree with what you just said, Stephanie, on the idea that we need to be leaning in and there sh- everyone should be able to have access to that same caliber of clinicians that that really truly care about you. Conversely, on the other hand, it took me on average in the United States, it takes 10 years for the uh, a woman to get diagnosed with endometriosis. My personal story, 25. Um, so it really is, you know, what awareness looks like, what our own biases look like and everyone putting in the work. I really appreciate uh, both Barbara and Stephanie for joining me today on what is such an important topic. We're going to be continuing our discussion on these data points on what women's equity within healthcare looks like, closing the women's health gap over our next few episodes. We're really excited about what this conversation means um, for us and, and the story arc that we're going into. So for everyone that joined us today, thank you so much for um, attending and we look forward to having you on future episodes. Thank you. Thank you.